This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tight-lipped informants. Philip Von Stosch. Mid-90s SF films. And Dancing Plagues. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. It was a rainy night in the city. The rattle of dice. The thump of miniatures. The crunch of Doritos. All the sounds of criminality all around me. Peter Frampton was coming alive. And I had to look into it. I call it the case of the tight-lipped informant. And this is the Gaming Hut. Robin, you have proposed this case to us as joint detectives, as the spade and archer of gaming. And How about the spade and Marlow? <laughs> the spade and Marlow of gaming? Well, they, did they ever team up? That would be terrible. They didn't, but Archer gets bumped off. So I know, but all right. Anyway. Pick any other detective who doesn't get bumped we off. We could be the Nick and Nora, but I don't know that you're going to like that any better. Anyhow's. the question is, how does closing off avenues of investigation when you're designing a scenario, either in a book or at the table, Robin, it's as though when the GM wants something to happen, the players dig their heels in and scream like toddlers. Is there a way to fix that? I guess is the question. Right. Or it's, this is actually sort of the, the obverse of that. Obverse of is, that. So let's say that you have a scene. That's right. Yes. Preventing toddlers from going somewhere never makes them scream. You're correct, Robin. What was I thinking? Yes. So <laughs> you've got a, a case where, the detective goes to the bar, or detectives in the case of a role-playing uh, scenario, unless you're playing one-to-one, -one, and you know that the person that they ought to talk to at the bar is the guy in the corner who's in his cups and uh, is a bit of a blabbermouth and is the one who is likely to talk to them. It's an right. underworld bar, and so you figure that it makes no sense whatsoever for the actual bartender 
to be giving out information on his violent criminal clients. Right. Because A, he wants to keep them as clients. B, doesn't want to get shot. And so you just think, well, it doesn't make sense for the bartender to be a blabbermouth. And if you're just running this on the fly and you see this happen, you can adjust. It's a little tougher in a scenario. So the, the, the syndrome is that perversely, often, by putting up a no, you can't get information from this person. They're tight-lipped. They, they're taciturn. They don't respond. Or, you know, this door has an extra super-duper lock on it. And what you're trying to do is just like, A, either in, in a written scenario, uh, have it, you know, not be, you know, save that 500 words mm -hmm. that you would need to also have the bartender be informative or just to, to keep it tight. Or in this instance, we already explained, it's also unrealistic for this person to talk. The problem is, though, that in a lot of playgroups, if the GM offers them a lot of resistance, they go, this is where we're supposed to go and not this is a dead end. Let's go over to the guy over on the side. And so this is a small problem in role playing. It's perhaps a 13 to 15 minute long problem to explain. Give or take. This is why we're uh, getting into it. So for the scenario writer, the answer is just know this syndrome exists and add a couple of lines to help steer the GM. But for the GM, what are the different options when you realize that there's a dead end that's extensively signaled as a don't bother with this, this is boring, that where the players nonetheless think that this is where they got to go. What do, we, what do we do? What are the techniques that we use to uh, keep it smooth uh, without having the players necessarily feel that they're being, uh, you know, yanked from a direction that suddenly they all want to go in? Well, the I think the first sort of uh, one bar room setup that you've given us, it's easier to do preventative play when if you see oh the bartender's not going to talk i know that's going to be a problem because my players are toddlers or toddlers in in their heart obviously they're mature <laughs> wonderful people so you just have as they go in the social minded player or the player playing the character with the highest human or insight or whatever notice the drunk over in the bar who no one is talking to and it's like that guy looks secretive and the other clients are sort of shying away from him. Maybe he, you know, is, is got a bad reputation around and then that will draw them to the actual clue font instead of wasting their time with the bartender or the other patrons. And you hopefully avoid the question. They never even think to talk to the bartender because they're so excited trying to pry information out of the reluctant drunk, who of course will give it to them because he's a drunk and he's mad at his boss or whatever his actual motivation is. So if you can do it in that sort of closed setting, it's pretty, I don't want to say easy, but I think it's pretty simple to redirect before they even get to that problem. Yes. Remember not to have this problem. The problem is that if you are instead of in one bar where you can use that, you know, human or that insight to point them, let's say they're on a, a street and it's a street of, you know, it's a suburban street. And one of the housewives is someone who has seen the UFOs and the other housewives have all been mind blanked by the UFOs. But this one housewife is, you know, got a, you know, a, a, a quirk of brain chemistry or she was, you know, protected by an owl or something. And so she remembers the UFOs. And so there's only one housewife to talk to. Now you can montage it and say, you talk to all the housewives until you get to Betty Ann and Betty Ann spills her story. But what you would rather do is role play the housewives shutting down and saying, Nope, nothing bad has ever happened on this suburb. Oak lane is the best suburb and do that. And if the player characters 
you know, start with the first one and never get to the second one to realize this is the clue itself, then you are running into the tight-lipped informant because it's meant for them to be, you know, mind-controlled or have their memory blanked or whatever that the UFO's fell ability is, right? Right. And so, to do that, I feel like to get them off that dime, you almost have to go, you know, like the old, you know, like you advised way back in, you know, Fear Itself, hold up a sign that says, scene ends or this is all this person knows honest or um or uh, in the in the moment you turn to the player with the uh playing the person with the highest psychoanalysis or the again the highest insight and you say you think that they legitimately don't know anymore which is weird and then that sort of hopefully clues the players in that they should maybe talk to the other people on the block until they do get to betty ann who it turns out does know stuff right so that's technique number two which is have the informant who doesn't know anything have the one thing they know point to the other person who does know. Right, so yeah. that can, in this example, the people who say that they uh, haven't seen a UFO, they all say, and be careful, you know, don't talk to Cindy because, uh, you know, she's got some weird ideas. She's kooky. Yeah. So don't talk to her. She'll confuse you. And that, of course, will couple. The- she voted for Stevenson. Yeah. So that, that couples the players being told basically one, the actual tight lipped informant tells the players that the informative informant is tight lipped and makes them want to go talk to her. Right. And again, the bartender version, you can say, well, the bartender obviously does not want to talk to you. And it seems like they have good reason, but uh, she sort of looks over at the guy in the corner and seems kind of nervous about uh, him as if he will be the blabbermouth. Right. So that's another way to, to do it. I put the caveat in this earlier that players don't want to feel too led, but then that's the other, you know, final backstop, which is you can, again, kind of do it in character and say, as a seasoned investigator, you sort of get the sense that, you know, you know, bartenders, you know, bartenders in dive bars, they're not the ones who are going to talk. You need to find somebody else who is going to talk. And then they can go look, well, what criteria would that? Oh, there, that guy, he seems, you know, drunker and lonelier than the others. And that, mm-hmm. again can make them feel like they thought of it rather than being, you know, pushed in that direction. And of course, the tight-lipped informant, as I sort of alluded to earlier, isn't always a literal person who's going to provide you with information, but might in some other way be a a plot thread that you that the scenario writer wanted to save time and again, so this could be like a locked door or but don't put a locked door. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's scenario writers don't put a locked door that does because if there's a locked door, they're going to try and open it. Or yeah, you, you put know, an, a door that opens onto a boring office that nothing is exciting about. Right. But, you know, if you you come to a fork in the road and you you may say, well, there's all sorts of evidence to go down this other fork. What happens when they go down the, the, the first fork or, or what have you? And so it's always good to sort of have in mind what happens if they, you know, get suspicious that they're being led in one direction, you know, have some way to have them find something interesting down the other thing. But it's not an expectation that you can necessarily have of a written scenario because written scenarios have to combine themselves to a a certain, you know, word count. And so part of this, I guess, is what techniques do you use when the players get really interested in the building that you just described offhandedly, or, you know, you made the mistake of mentioning that there was a side road. What do you do then to make that 
Or you, you did a voice for the beggar and now they all want to talk to him forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that this is the sort of larger question of how to run investigative games without, you know, having them follow along a little pattern. And for me, the only real solution to it that really feels organic and works in play is to have a notion of what the, you know, the problem, the crime, the monster, whatever you're looking for has done to the setting. What is the spore of their disruption? And maybe most of the spore is down the East Fork because that's where their lair is. And that's where the, you know, summer camp is. And that's where all the other stuff is, you know, all of the scenario happens on the East Fork, but the West Fork is connected to it. So there should be something, even if it just points you back down the East Fork, but it should be something that has been affected by the critter. And it might be as simple as while you're walking down the West Fork, you notice that there's a lot more animals in the woods than there normally are. It's like there's maybe double the amount of animals that there should be or double the amount of birds. And I wonder what that would be, because, of course, the monster has driven all the animals down the other fork because they don't want to hang out with a monster. They're animals. They're smart. Or that there's, you know, some broken tree branches that sort of, you know, as you're, as you're looking for it, it makes kind of an arrow and it points east because the monster flew in and, you know, has torn up some trees or what you just have to think about spore footprints, ripples. If it's a social setting, there's going to be people, even though the east side is where all the monstering is, on the west side, they're going to have cousins and employers and, you know, whatever it is, some uh, priests, people who are worried about east-siders, even though east-siders are, you know, sort of poor monster food type of people, not nice people like we have on the west side where we never, ever see a UFO. And so you might be thinking, you know, what are what connections would there be? is what you need to be thinking. And then of the connections that there would, what can I draw out to the player's attention? And ideally, how can I make that entertaining enough that they don't feel like all they did when they went to the West side or the West fork of the forest or whatever is just get led back around that there's some kind of, you know, part of the spore that is at the very least interesting to solve. And ideally maybe a little bit dangerous. Like, you know, there was a, one of the people who was killed by the monster on the east side was buried on the west side, and they're going to resurrect and turn into a monster if they're not dealt with or something like that, right? Right. And the attentive long-time listener will note that that's exactly the same advice we give for red herrings, where you introduce something deliberately to make the world seem more complex that doesn't go in that direction. And because you're emulating investigative and detective fiction, which is full of red herrings, and our standard answer to that is... Be careful at what red herrings you introduce because players will become too interested in them and you eventually want to use them to point people back at the plot. Here, we have essentially an anti-red herring where instead mm. of as the GM or a scenario writer, we're saying, look at this interesting thing. We're saying, don't look at this boring thing. And ironically, we may have more player engagement by uh, telling them not to look at the anti-red herring than we do by trying to get them interested in the red herring. The Solution, though, is the same, which is to, on the fly, find a way to connect that back up. So for scenario writers, we've been talking about GMs, one thing that you can always do when you're reviewing your scenario is look for things where you've just, for convenience sake, gone, well, they can't go this way, or they can't talk to this person, or the receptionist won't let them in. Because being told no is a powerful motivator to players to think that that's the obstacle they have to overcome instead of 
the boring thing that you're trying not to spend three to 500 words writing about. And so be conscious of a way to make them feel smart for not going down that path. So when you talk to the receptionist, you, you realize, oh no, she's a civilian. She's just doing her job. She doesn't know what's going on. She's not a suspect. Some way to suggest that. Or this half of the road has twice the number of animals on it. So clearly the place that the animals ran away from is the one you want to run toward. And so think of, and obviously you don't want to spend three to 500 words explaining this because the whole point is to be able to rule out some options to preserve space. Be aware of that syndrome that just a flat don't go here, this is boring, is essentially the same as telling players, this is the most exciting thing in the world, and it's the whole obstacle of the scene that you need to overcome. Well, that, Robin, sounded an awful lot like a summing up. And as you know, Robin, when we do a summing up, that means there's nothing more to see here. No one to talk to. Have to maybe take a different fork, look at that drunk over in the corner, or travel to a different hut. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The opening of the veil. The whispering of the diplomats, the sharpening of the knives tell us that we're once more in the Tradecraft Hut. But as is our wont, the Tradecraft Hut is, as you can gather from those details, sometimes of a historical nature. And uh, this time around, we are going to prove that even though we've been doing this for 10 years, we still have topics. Because boy, this uh, particular individual uh, crosses a number of huts, not just the Tradecraft Hut, because his name is Philip von Strauss. And uh, he's, we've talked about a lot of writers who turn out to be spies, but he's an antiquarian, dare we say a bookhound, who was also a spy. So Ken, situate us in time and place on uh, the life and exploits of Philip von Strauss. Okay. Philip is born in 1691 in Kustrin in Prussia. He is the heir to a mostly defunct baronetcy. No one can afford to keep it up in Kustrin. His dad is basically running the town as a dry goods magnate, I think. It eventually becomes mayor. But you know what a defunct baron is good for? Getting you into parties with real barons. And so as he goes traveling around Europe in his sort of grand tour, he introduces himself as the baron-elect von Stosch. And everyone's like, oh, a baron. Great. Come on in. He is interested in antiquities uh, from an early age because he is the younger brother. He is being brought up to be in the clergy. He doesn't find that particularly appealing. So since he doesn't want to go in the clergy, 
it is now the job of someone to figure out a job he can do. And so his brother-in-law introduces him to the secretary of the Estates General in Holland, which is sort of the secretary of state for uh, the Netherlands, a fellow named Franz Fagel, who is also an antiquarian and has a giant collection of Roman and Greek coins. And Fagel and von Stosch hit it off. And Fagel says, you know what I need? is a young, plausible guy to go on secret trips for the Netherlands. And so he makes him his courier to do secret missions, sends him on one mission to England in 1712, where he meets a professor at Cambridge, who is also an antiquarian, becomes super good friends with this guy, and that gets him into British aristocratic and antiquarian collector circles. And that then opens up yet more doors for him. So he is now establishing a reputation. He's traveling around at the behest of the Dutch, but secretly and deniably, he becomes buddies with the French exile group, the Chevalier de Jubilation, who are radical hermetic free thinker libertines, which means maybe they just like to get drunk and party, but maybe they're also heretics and, and masons and God knows what. Ritual occultists. Yeah, exactly. He teams up with them and then eventually makes his way to Rome, by which time he's got tons of letters of introduction from coincidentally influential French and British collectors, uh, makes friends with Pope Clement XI, and most importantly, Pope Clement XI's nephew, Alessandro Albani, who, in good time, will become even more important to von Stosch. It is during this set of travels around in Europe that he starts dealing in books. People will say, oh, I really need a copy of this book. And sure enough, he'll find one and, and send it on to his rich aristocratic patron. Maybe he'll get some money. Maybe he won't, but he will definitely get an IOU. Does the same thing with art and antiquities. There's one case where there's a French nobleman or a cardinal who says, this book was stolen from my library. Can you get it back? Philip von Stosch, I know you know that I had it because you were in my library when I did have it. <laughs> Who could possibly have stolen? Let me get right on that. Well, you know what? Philip von Stosch is on the case. He finds the book somehow and turns it back over to the cardinal. Huge gratitude everywhere. He uh, eventually becomes court antiquarian for Augustus II of Saxony and then says, so what is being a court antiquarian pay? And Augustus II sort of mumbles into his sleeve like kings do when you ask that question. So he moves on from Saxony. He's still collecting his pay and he's still sending stuff to Augustus. He just isn't living in stupid Dresden. Um, he settles in Rome in 1722. And it is at this place that he sort of establishes the center of his business of collecting and dealing in engraved gems. These are his super specialty. Roman and Greek artists used to carve mythological scenes into gems. And then, you know, you'd hold them up to the light. And you could see, you know, Heracles beating up the Hydra or whatever. And it was right. very exciting. And they contain mythic figures. You can see light through them. Obviously magical. Exactly. Need we say more? And so he collects manuscripts. He collects drawings. And he publishes an immense study of antique gems in 1724 to point out Look, this, you know, gem was signed. We know the names of so many more gem makers. We have so many great ways to tell real gems apart from forgeries. Just ask me and my team of gem carvers that I maintain in Rome, and we'll tell you what's a forged gem and what's a real gem. They're experts in all this. At this time, his buddy Albani has become a cardinal and the patron of the Roman Academy, so he basically runs Rome's antiquities trade. And guess who you want if you are a antiquities dealer? And maybe Forger to be your buddy, Cardinal Albani. And it is around this time also, 
uh, talk about a guy with irons in the fire that Lord Carteret, who he met when he was in Britain, says, we need a guy who knows all about secret conversations to report on the old pretender and the young pretender, the Stuart heirs who are maintaining their court in Rome because they got kicked out of England. And uh, we don't want people to go visit them without us knowing. So if you could just tell us everyone that the Stuart heirs see, that would be super helpful. And Stosh says, yeah, I know everything. I'm on it. Right. So being an antiquarian and a dealer in all of these things that uh, kings and worthies collect is an even better cover than being a dumb old writer. This is perfect. It's so good. So anyway, he spends uh, 10 happy years in Rome, building up his gigantic collection, building up his private museum, providing books, advising his buddy Fagel. He's still writing to him and saying, ah, this guy Holbein, you should collect him. And um, Fagel saying, really? Seems kind of modern. And, you know, trust me, Holbein's the new guy. So he's, you know, doing the sort of art dealer, art critic job as well. Got a lot going on. Uh, in 1731, and this is coincidentally after he has written a couple of letters to the English saying, do I still have to keep doing this spy stuff? I, I don't like filling out all these forms. He claims yeah, the that... The exciting part of my career is interfering with the lucrative part. With the rich uh, and academically interesting part of my career. He says, but he would accept uh, the appointment to professor of modern history at Cambridge if they wanted to do that for him. That would be nice. And by now, his buddy, Lord Carteret, has been kicked upstairs to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and a guy who does not like him, Sir Robert Walpole, is Prime Minister and is uh, running the spy network kind of personally. But Walpole, you know, he does not like Von Stosch, but you know what he does like? Antique gems. <laughs> he, he can't stand not having cool antique gems and so i'm mad at people who have antique gems that i would prefer to have exactly and so he is on the one hand saying we should fire von stosh he's useless his product is old then he's writing to von stosh and saying hey you know that gem with a gladiator in it is there a way i could get that and von stosh would write back and say hey my back pay for being a spy is there any way i could get that and walpole says don't be an idiot and he says oh that gladiator i just sold it to a different lord who hates you sorry also he's influential at court and he got me my back pay so he claims that four masked men told him at gunpoint to leave rome this is also roughly the time that the popes have changed so he is a little less protected than he was high up. He just moves to Florence. The uh, Grand Duke of Florence is the last of the Medicis. Loves an art collector. He's a Medici. He knows this. So he's made totally welcome in Florence, even so welcome as to found a Masonic lodge in Florence, dedicated, among other things, to Rosicrucian alchemy. The Pope gets wind of this and says, you can't have a Catholic Masonic order for so many reasons. Shuts it in 1738. The British agent at Florence. And I'm sure that's it for alchemy for this. Yes. Never, never happens again. No more Freemasonry in Europe. The British agent at Florence, Sir Horace Mann, again, a guy who loves antiquities and therefore goes out on a limb to protect Von Stosch, but his boss is Walpole. And so he's sending, you know, his correspondence is very interesting. And the king, it turns out, loves Von Stosch's reports because they're in German. And the king says, I don't ever get to read German. He stays on the list. So he's by now uh, branched out into selling Maltese cats, which is hilarious. He's wearing a monocle. He is unmarried by choice. He is very, very active in the homosexual underworld, the gay underworld of Italy, and one assumes of other courts in Europe. 
and which is again, another great way to meet people and get clients for your antiquities business. And so in uh, 1757, he has an adopted nephew who succeeds him as Baron because he dies as we all must. And the nephew, uh, the new Baron uh, is trying to sell this gigantic museo stash as it is called, and no one can afford it. Uh, so they, he breaks it up. The Vatican library buys Stasha's library of 6,000 books. And it's probably many more than 6,000. 6,000 is just the number in the catalog. He, for example, did not catalog a lot of his other books and uh, certainly his occult ones. Particularly the stolen ones. Well, he, it turns out the, the nephew who did the catalog cataloged a lot of books that were stolen from the Vatican library. The Vatican library does not know it's buying its own books back. That's not discovered until 1876 when someone goes through the catalogs and says, Hey, <laughs> he's got a atlas of 30,000 plus topographical and archaeological antiquarian maps and drawings in 300 volumes. Those are bought by the Habsburg Empire in 1764. And Albini's librarian, who is the great art historian Johann Winkelmann, publishes a book about Stasha's collection of 3,400 engraved gemstones to drum up business. And so Frederick the Great buys them in 1765. And as we all have, Robin, he comes in and he says, oh, yeah, give me those uh, 3,400 engraved gemstones. And uh, oh, just pack up all the gay erotica. I'll buy that, too. Yeah, it's stuff up on the shelf. That's yeah, stuff. just put it in. Why not? So that's uh, that's that. Winkelmann, uh, interestingly, is murdered in 1768 in a hotel in Trieste where he is staying anonymously by a former cook and occasional uh, sneak thief named Francesco Arcangeli. And no one knows why Arcangeli kills him. Nothing is stolen from Winkelmann's apartments, but he's dead. And uh, Arcangeli is caught and broken on the wheel and dies. And that is, as far as I can trace it, the track of Philip von Stosch ends with the guy who knew all about his magic question mark gems being murdered for no reason. Just happened. Just a drive by. Right. So through most of the 18th century in Europe, if you've got an intrigue game going in that undercovered era, mm-hmm. von Stosch knows something that your characters want to know has a treasure that they want, can buy a treasure from them. Need we say more? Yeah, I mean, he's got his own Masonic group in Florence. He's part of a different magical group in the Netherlands. He's got Augustus II is a big patron of alchemy. He's the basically the last big patron of alchemy in Europe. He might hire the player characters to steal a gem or to uh, retrieve a gem that has been stolen from him. Or to carry this package to a different place in Europe and don't look in the package, even if it starts glowing and moaning. He's got a, a million household uses. He is, as you mentioned, a book hound. He might have made a map of a certain catacomb. He was, in fact, lowered on a rope down into Herculaneum 20 years before it was excavated. So if there was some magic amulet of uh, Hephaestus or Vulcan down in there, he probably stole it. And so (laughs) anything you want to have um, filtered in from the uh, ancient Roman past, he's got a handle on it. He's got teams of artists in his employ. He's literally everywhere you want to be. And he is... Obviously, personally, very charming, and also has uh, the morals of one of his Maltese cats, I suspect. Well, since he has so many uses, we will allow the listener to figure out exactly uh, which one of them they want to use first and move on through this exciting commercial to whatever happens to lie on the other side. 
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from deadly dancing by joining such stalwart Patreon backers as... Dwayne Krigulski. Gray St. Quentin. Hector Trelane. Jay Moore. And Josh King. I think the carpet is maybe now almost a dark purple. Maybe it's almost black. The the flecks of color, they're still bright neon, but we're beginning to sense that only adults are going to get allowed into the movies now, that we've let uh, teen energies run riot and everything has to settle down. This is the 90s, people. We're very serious. Things are about to turn beige and grunge simultaneously, but not quite yet, because we have one last magnificent breath of the 80s coming to us with James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day, the rare sequel that I think exceeds its parent. And its parent was, as we reminded you earlier, a nearly perfect film. Uh, This one once more brings Arnold Schwarzenegger back as the Terminator. But in this case, he is a good Terminator program to protect Linda Hamilton from a even more advanced liquid metal Terminator played with cold-eyed perfection by Robert Patrick. Edward Furlong is the young John Connor who will grow up to be the leader of the resistance. He's a young, hideous punk, but he's basically a good kid at heart. And when he and Arnold and Linda finally, you know, resolve their storyline in the end of the first act, it's a very satisfying family unit that is then defended against this literally shapeless threat from the future. And the better Terminator sequels lean into that in a way that um, they forget about the rest of the film. But uh, in this particular instance, it really works. It's bracketed by the last gasp of Cold War nuclear paranoia, which again is evoked superbly by Cameron as sort of a dream sequence, a, a future visionary sequence that uh, really sets the tone for the film and, and really sets up the stakes without then forgetting that we're actually telling a story of a family and their giant protecting robot. Yeah. If this is not the greatest sequel of all time, it's number two. And (laughs) it is one that does what Godfather 2 doesn't do, which is it's a radical shift from the first one, which is a horror pursuit movie. And again, just as he did with somebody else's franchise, Cameron has flipped genres. This is much clearly an action movie. It's lit like an action movie, but it is an extremely innovative one that that ups the ante and like Road Warrior before it, it is still a gold standard action film. It just keeps going. And the CGI, which was breathtakingly amazing at the time, again, holds up incredibly well. And this is just sort of the, the pinnacle of blockbuster 90s filmmaking. And in a way, it's the film that almost every, you know, would-be blockbuster is still trying somehow to make, but it's not that easy. It is not, as as several Terminator sequels then went on to demonstrate practically. Yes, it is really <laughs> the last great, it's the second great Terminator movie and the last great Terminator movie because there isn't enough of it 
as much as you want to explore the world and come at it from different angles or then recapitulate it, it doesn't need any more. <laughs> There's yeah. a commercial need for more. But Cameron, you know, it said what needed to be said uh, with his first two films. Now we're going to go to another form of cyberpunk robotic human fusion. And we're going to go to uh, Japan for Shinya Zukamoto's 1991 Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer, which is a bizarre freak out of a film. It's done in black and white. It's sort of basically if you, you know, married the sensibility of, you know, it's cyberpunk anime with a racer head and maybe a bit of Stan Brackage as well, mm -hmm. you would get the bizarre freak out that is Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. This is definitely midnight movie sensory overload territory. It'll bust you uh, back in your seat and I think is sort of great inspiration for uh, how you can take experimental cinema and fuse it with uh, genre cinema. Yeah, it's um, it, it's everything you said. It's, you know, you almost don't have time to be uh, appalled at the body horror because you're being amazed that someone would even think to put this on the screen in the first place. It's just, you know, if shock and awe are the emotions a film is trying to bring about, this is the absolute success as a movie, uh, I don't know that it really, I mean, similarly to Cronenberg, I guess it must have more influenced J-horror than it did science fiction going forward in Japan, but it certainly, you know, it, it leaves a mark on you. You know, maybe this is just uh, provincialism. I don't know how essential it is to science fiction, but it's essential to horror, and I don't think we mentioned it in the horror essential, so here we are. Right, and it's absolutely a science fiction film, or even a superhero film, right? It's about being infected with powers. Yeah, no, and you yeah it really is a superhero film. It's just a superheroes in the real world would be broken parodies of people. Yep. And here we are. <laughs> so decades before Zack Snyder figures that out, here we have Tsukamoto uh, doing it with a uh, black and white style. Also decades before Zack Snyder in Tetsuo too. So, right. Yeah. And it's a bizarre vision of the future. I think yeah, it's is just also what messed up on every good category. level. A couple of mentionables now. This is not a masterpiece, but check it out. Uh, Axiom Mutante, the first film by Alex D'Iglesia. This is a fun, nutty, brutal, black comedy. It envisions a, a future society where basically it's an attractiveocracy. Only beautiful people get to rule. And so the ugly rebels turn against them and they wind up a crash landing on a, a mining planet. So it's a, another example of the... 90s uh, sort of indie style foreign art house films merging with uh, cult cinema that's worth checking out. Yeah. And uh, Robin, you put this on the list, but suddenly I'm in charge of mentioning it. I will mention Demolition Man, Marco Bambrilla, also 1993 now. This is Stallone in for Schwarzenegger as the galoot from out of time. He's a cop. He's cryonically frozen. They unfreeze him when his nemesis, played by Wesley Snipes, is also cryonically unfrozen. And they are the sand in the gears of a utopia in the future. It's a, I would say, by the numbers action film. Stallone is doing his best. The real reason to watch it for me is it's an early performance by Sandra Bullock, and she is a ray of sunshine whenever she's on the screen. And of course, the iconic line, every restaurant is Taco Bell, has once more, as with so many magic spells chanted unwisely, come to pass in our future. But I don't know that, I guess it's mentionable because you made me mention it, Robin, but why did you put it on the list? <laughs> well, it's mentionable because it's a popular Fun film. I think the thing that makes it worth mentioning, it's not a terrible film. And no, no. I think it is an example of all of these elements being recombined and, and becoming part of a standard genre. And the fun twist is the, you know, the, the idea 
of the the future that has become too safe, right? That right. That's that's the interesting twist is that everything is too good in this future. And so when someone really terrible comes in and starts to mess it up, then you need to go back into crazy action hero territory. So, so I think to wrap this segment up, well, we talked earlier, but we started with Terminator 2. So let's start with the, the other bookend of the film that sort of cements CGI forever and just astounds audiences with what it can do. And that is Spielberg's Jurassic Park from 1993. It is thematically very similar to Westworld, also based on a, a Michael Crichton novel. But the way that it brings back the dinosaurs in this park were improbably, uh, someone thinks it's a great idea to bring back dinosaurs and we all know it's going to happen. But it's the, it's Spielberg at his uh, sort of thriller creation best. It's just amazing thriller set piece after amazing thriller set piece. And then there's the wonder of you watching those characters wonder at dinosaurs coming to life for, for these length of that film, you're going, dinosaurs, they're back to life. And then after the credits roll, you're like, wow, computer animation has really stunningly advanced. And this was sort of the the blockbuster to raise the level of all blockbusters. It was the only film playing at multiplexes for (laughs) most of that summer. And again, is the kind of film that filmmakers are always aiming to uh, replicate when they're trying to make giant hits. Yeah, everything that you talk about, the sense of wonder that I think is one of Spielberg's you know, does it better than anybody is completely present in this. The dinosaurs are great. I like it because as mad scientist schemes go, it's one that everyone in the audience roots for. No one is saying, oh, no, you should bring your dead wife back. That would be excellent. But everyone says, yes, I want to see dinosaurs. And not least because Sam Neill and Laura Dern evoke that wonder of seeing dinosaurs so well that it transmits into the audience, which I think is a really clever cinematic element that Spielberg catches onto, that the wonder can go both ways. I talked about Sam Neill and Laura Dern. They are, you know, they're normally sort of old, reliable, cast them in anything. They'll be great. They're even greater than that. Jeff Goldblum, you know, as we talked about the fly, but here I think he really sort of comes into his own as the Jeff Goldblum of film and uh, his sort of snarky, ironic, but somehow feckless and doomed even though in the movie he's not, he's all fine character. He brings it, it, it Spielberg, you know, wakens it up and uh, it's got just a great, you know, cast of people that you are kind of happy to see squashed by a Tyrannosaurus. And then the surprise that the real baddie is not the Tyrannosaurus, but these Velociraptors, another great, uh, you know, sort of villain reveal Spielberg having the whole hand of dinosaurs to play, plays it magnificently. You know, there's a reason it sat in the Cineplex all summer. It was because you couldn't wait to see it again. You couldn't wait to get that look at the Brachiosaurus or whatever it is, you know, going past them in the jungle. It's uh, visually lush. The CGI, even, you know, today still looks great. It's still a great looking movie. It, you know, obviously spawned a, a vast number of unworthy sequels in the same way that many of these great blockbusters do. But at the time, it really was Spielberg sort of reminding everyone that when he wanted to, he could make a, he could redefine science fiction cinema in a way. And then everyone had to scramble to catch up to him. And it's, uh, it's a real triumph from him as a director, as well as being just an amazing CGI spectacle of dinosaurs. Right. Well, since here in 1993, it is the only movie playing. Uh, I guess we're going to have to close up the uh, Cinema Hut this week, but we'll come back and maybe there'll be some more movies, perhaps even from 1993 still, uh, when we return. But we're not done with this episode, so let's find another hut.
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to enter perhaps the most ill-defined hut of all of our huts, the one where we're sort of at the intersection of crankitude and urban legend and, uh, you know, the occasional paranormal thing, but also UFOs. We're not really sure what category it falls into, but we are sure that there's an alien big cat screaming out in the moor. And over in the corner, we have the gray alien and the Nordic alien enjoying a kombucha together. But this time, they're sort of jiggling in their seats. They're kind of got a rhythm going because I think they're going to, if we're not careful, get up and dance, but not like the good kind of dance, but a, a plague a case where you are subject to choreomania because a uh, beloved Patreon backer Lobberfan wants to know about dancing plagues. And this turns out to be a big subject that uh, indeed is very leptonic because uh, nobody is quite sure what the cause of it was and whether it touches on a lot of different uh, angles in the realm of Fortiana, but it's something, Ken, that happened a lot. It did, and uh, it seems to have happened primarily in the medieval era. We don't have a lot of cases of it, although, as we will see, there are certain uh, similarities between the dancing plague and other stuff that happens elsewhere. Right. So this is sometimes known as St. John's Dance. It often strikes in midsummer on St. John's Day. And especially confusingly, talk about terms that have changed over time, it's sometimes called St. Vitus Dance. Very annoyingly, someone later came along and gave that name to an actual real medical disorder that has only tangential relationship to this whole phenomenon, and that is a Sydney Korea, which is a, a phenomenon that causes uh, tremors in children. But as we'll find out, St. Vitus, a local German saint, plays a big role in one of the most famous and biggest cases of this. So, you know, we have to mention that it's also called St. Vitus Dance, uh, although someone wrecked what that term meant later. So the first case of dancing mania that we know of, uh, the first cases, in fact, appear in Lives of the Saints. One is in A Life of St. Eligius, where he stops 50 dancers in June in uh, Noyon and Picardy, and uh, circa 700, St. Villabroard stops a outbreak in May or June, because it's uh, tied to the uh, Feast of the Ascension, at uh, Vaxweiler in the Palatinate, and they still have, Robin, a dance that happens in Ectenburg, which is where St. Villabroard sent all the dancers to be cured by a holy shrine there. And they still have that dance there on 
Quit Tuesday every year. So that is maybe another little drop in our mosaic of explanations for this. There's another case that is probably clearly pretty legendary from Kolbeck in Saxony. The legend says it happens at Christmas. Spoiler, this is the only case in history that happens in winter. So the Christmas sounds like it might be a thing. There's 18 dancers and the uh, St. Peter curses them to dance all year. This is a very common leitmotif in the versions of these stories that come down through religious chronicles and the like. Our old uh, buddy Geraldus Cambrensis uh, has a story from Wales, from St. Elunids, of many dancers around St. Elunid's shrine circa 1200. And then you get down to the sort of uh, Rhine and Mosul valleys, which is where the majority of these cases are going to be starting with a dance that led from Erfurt to Arnstadt in Thuringia in 1237 in June. And that was either a hundred or a thousand children, depending on which chronicle you believe who were led from Erfurt to Arnstadt by their dancing. And the uh, people of Erfurt were all very worried. And the people of Arnstadt were like, nope, nope, here are your kids. They're all dancing. And the priests came and they cured them, you know, by, you know, exercising their demons. And then they came home, but many of them still twitched and were uh, sickly to this day, according to the Chronicle. Right. Uh, because by dancing, I think we need need to emphasize off the bat that people are, are it's uncontrollable, spasmodic, undesired movement in most of these cases where they're yeah. taken out of control. So it seems less like a sort of a celebratory mass hysteria. It's not, you know, speaking in tongues or, you know, deliberately, you know, communing with spirits or whatever, but that most of the people in these accounts who are affected, for them, it's an affliction and right. it's uncomfortable. It's exhausting when they're done at the end, they're, they're worn out or they're hurt or, you know, so this is, this is bad. It, it is a plague. It's a bad thing happening to the people who are involved. Right. Although, given the nature of the Chronicles, there are lots of versions of of the story, some of them in which it's demons that make people dance because they're dancing instead of doing a proper religious ceremony. This is the case from that Kolbig story. Some of the cases are very clearly, as you say, they are, you know, not... Uh, driven by demons to commit evil, they're possessed by demons, and so they're in pain. And right. so that's or the, the saints who sometimes stop these things, sometimes also start them allegedly, yeah. by cursing people, which seems unsaintly, but you know, medieval Christianity. Apparently, you know, the the left hand of the saint, yeah. which would make a great novel or something. Uh, so we have another case in Maastricht in 1278. This happens in July. We have 200 dancers, and they dance so much they break a bridge and fall into the river. And this is another case where the implication in the story is they committed blasphemy because they were dancing and then there was a procession carrying the the body of Christ past them and they were supposed to stop and, and bow and they didn't. And that's why the bridge broke to punish them for all that dancing. Uh, there is a very brief mention of a case in Bohemia in 1349, right as the Black Death is coming through. Apparently people had other stuff to worry about. And then a big outbreak, the biggest outbreak in history is in Aachen in 1374. This begins in July in Aachen. Many thousands of dancers spread. And so the dance is now contagious from city to city, even more than just the one a children's dance that we talked about. It goes to Liège in Belgium and the Netherlands. It goes to Trier, Cologne, goes as far as Ghent, goes down in some reports as far as Italy, although I didn't find any specific cases. People just say, and it happened in Italy. But it does seem to have gone all the way down the Rhine, almost, you know, to uh, like Mainz and Augsburg. And uh, that whole stretch of the Rhine and Mosul Valleys was just blown up 
with dancing. And it uh, happened again in 1375 and again in 1376. And the uh, theory that some have is that it was sparked by the Hungarian pilgrimage of King Ludwig I or Louis I of Hungary, who in fact came to Aachen in 1374 with a bunch of people from out of town. So if there's an infectious vector, maybe King Louis is part of that, and that's why it was so virulent there. But anyway, uh, we have another case in Augsburg and one in Trier in 1381, again in June. Uh, that Aachen outbreak, by the way, runs until September. We have cases in Zurich, 1418 and 1428, no date given. And then a big case in Strasbourg in 1518, which again lasted from July to September. The number of dancers, depending on which chronicle you read, is between 40 and 500. And this one, uh, finally, Robin, we have a proper elliptonist who comes and investigates it. Yes, and this is well documented enough to have the, enough interesting detail to start to recreate it. Yeah, and uh, the interesting elliptonist in this case is the scientist, medico, and alchemist, maybe not in that order, Paracelsus. And he comes by in uh, 1526. And Robin, you want to break down what uh, Paracelsus finds out for everybody? Right. So, uh, it is already known by the time, like that's eight years after the event, but mm -hmm. everybody knows while it's happening that the first person to start being uncontrollably moved is a woman named Frau Trophia. And the explanation on the scene while it's happening depends on whether you're a clergyman or a doctor. Clergy, again, say, well, St. Vitus has cursed her which again seems rather unsaintly, but the doctors say it's a natural disease and nothing supernatural about it. It's overheated blood. And so obviously what you do when someone is dancing because their blood is overheated, and of course this is now spreading, there's a contagion effect, they have no germ theory, but overheated blood is spreading. So they go, well, obviously this is the body's way of trying to cool down the blood. That's why you dance. So let's get everybody dancing. And at that point, the officials commandeer guild halls as dance floors. They hire a band even so that people uh, have music to dance to. And this turns out to be an overcorrection because what it does <laughs> is it gets more people dancing. It spreads the disease. And so the council then does a 180 as one does in a public health crisis. And they then forbid all public dance. And that's a big deal because this in, in, in uh, the sort of Germanic area, right? Germany doesn't exist yet, but the German culture does. Communal dance is a big thing on every level of society from the, you know, drunkest workman to the most sophisticated uh, burger. And so no more dance. And eventually it just sort of ends inconclusively. The burgers presumably congratulate themselves for having outlawed dance and stopping it. And then Paracelsus shows up eight years later. He categorizes uh, three degrees of uh, choreomania. There's chorea lascivia, which is caused by voluptuous desires. That's footloose syndrome, as we know it now. Footloose syndrome. That's why, exactly, that's why dancing is banned there. There's chorea imaginativa, which is caused by the imagination or from rage and swearing. And then there's a third one that's not as serious. It is an actual bodily twitch, according to Paracelsus. He also concludes, however, that Frau Trophia, that this all started... Uh, it wasn't a curse, wasn't a disease, but it was the woman trying to annoy her husband, <laughs> you know, being lewdly and lasciviously annoying her husband, because that's the best way to annoy a husband. And then that There's a lot to, of ways, but I think yeah. Frau Trophea probably knew Herr Trophea best. Yes. And then that, according to Paracelsus, spread to other wives who wanted to annoy their own husbands, and it became a whole thing. So he did come up with the social contagion theory for an elliptonic event. However, 
a pretty sexist and reductionist uh, one, as alchemists are prone to. Well, you know, this is just the, the way of the world with Paracelsus, and frankly, the fact that he didn't just poison them with all mercury is a gigantic step forward. Right. So, but he does write up the case in a book called The Opus Paramirum, therefore establishing himself as uh, one of the early paranormal investigators. Yeah. Strasbourg turns out to be the last big outbreak that we have records of. There's a group of children that dance in Basel. There's like a single guy dancing in Anhalt. Uh, this is in the 1530s. In Muhlenbeek in Brussels, there is at least a small parade of dancers in 1564 in June. And we know this because Peter Bruegel, the beloved Bruegel the Elder, drew it. He sketched it while it was happening because he thought, this is amazing. This is like a Bruegel painting happening. I'd better draw it. And he does. And so we have literally the visual representation of what the symptoms were. And the trouble, of course, with, well, not with great art, but with human paranoia is you look at it and you're a doctor. You look at that and you say, that's clearly symptoms of chorea. That's a, you know, pseudonyms chorea, some kind of nervous twitching disease. But if you are an anthropologist, you look at that and you say, that's ecstatic worship. And so, you know, Bruegel did his part and we do know about this outbreak, but it does not necessarily move us forward Paracelsus style. And then the last case that I was able to find is in Dreffelhausen, which is in Thuringia, which is down along the Main River, I think. And that is groups of women were dancing around the shrine of St. Vitus, and they would go in a regular pilgrimage. And it turns out that they, some of them had been doing it for 30 years and that it was partly a religious dance for St. Vitus, which is why St. Vitus gets involved in all this to begin with. Right, but because part of it, his, he has a statue that people dance around. Right, and and part of it is that they were suffering these symptoms, and the way to cure it was to go dance around St. Vitus's statue, and then he would cure it for you. But that it became this sort of ongoing social habit well after the social contagion had theoretically broken, which would have happened back in the 1590s. That's another interesting case. And obviously we can elucidate lots of cases where survivors of hysterical events still fall back on those from UFO abduction to, you know, any other sort of social panic. There's always those people for whom that was the big thing in their lives. And it recreates maybe psychosomatically, or maybe just you get together with your fellow you know, uh, this, they, they didn't have next door back then, but this would be your next door group in Dreffelhausen and you'd talk it over and then you'd feel the old Twitch come back and you'd get together and dance. And one assumes that the husbands of Dreffelhausen were like, well, I guess we get June off. That's nice. Right. Or, or there's a ritualized, safer version of the original visionary experience that recapitulates it. Right. And then in a related case, there is Tarantism which is believed to be caused by the bite of a tarantula or even seeing a tarantula. This is a social, culturally bound syndrome that is basically restricted to southern Italy, Apulia, Basilicata, Calabria, a little bit of Sicily. And this happens between 1100 and 1700. The peak is in the 15th and 17th century. Another great elliptonist, Athanasius Kircher, studies it in 1639 and 40. And this is, you get, you see a, a tarantula, or you're bitten by a tarantula, or maybe a scorpion, or maybe a brown recluse, something, and then you have to dance it out, but only a specific song will cure 
the bite of the tarantula. And that dance is called the tarantella. And the tarantella, of course, then shows up in classical music, Chopin, Liszt, Tchaikovsky, all of them do tarantellas because it becomes a folk dance. Because they were famously constantly being bitten by tarantulas. Well, you know, if you're Tchaikovsky, quite frankly, you're living in that horrible cholera-ridden apartment. I'll bet you are probably being bitten by spiders a lot. But anyway, the uh, tarantella becomes a folk dance. And then, as you say, a ritualized version of what might or might not have been a similar sort of outbreak. Again, if you look, the peak is in the 15th century. That's right when we have this outbreak in medieval Europe, or it's between the two big ones that we know about. So also the Tarantella happens, Tarantism rather, happens in the summer months between May and October. The last known case of Tarantism was in 1959. American anthropologists studied it by going to the sort of ground zero, a town called Galatina, and they saw it happen. And I suppose the list, uh, the children dancing from Erfurt to Arnstadt maybe puts people in mind of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And to the extent you can date the Pied Piper of Hamelin, Hamlin, it happens right around this same time. The best guess is 1384, which, of course, is right after the giant outbreak in Aachen. So there we are. That's the thing. And as we have alluded, there are lots of possible explanations. The standard, the fallback, the, the swamp gas of medieval phenomena, ergotism. The one everybody likes. Everyone likes. People eat damp rye that uh, got ergot in it. They get high and they start twitching and dancing. Again, absolutely. Yes. And it's it's no coincidence that this became the most popular explanation during the psychedelic era. The problem with ergotism as an explanation for this phenomenon is that ergot is a poison that once you take it, shortly thereafter makes you fall over. <laughs> what it doesn't do is make you dance for days and days on end. It, you physically can't do it. So the the coolest, best funnest, most hallucinogenic answer for this doesn't actually pass the practicality test. Ah, well, there we are. The the next guess, as I alluded, is that this is a ritual behavior. People were saying, but the cult of Dionysus was driven underground. Perhaps the maenads, the sacred dancers, passed down their arts in secret. And I love this explanation, except there was probably no cult of Dionysus in the Rhine Valley, so sorry. Um, the other possibility is it's a new ecstatic religious movement, and you can compare the Quakers, who are so-called because of their habit of shuddering and shaking while in the grips of visions. Another one is that it's superstitious mania. You feel weird, and so you rush out and start dancing at the local shrine, whatever it happens to be, which ties you into the notion of cultural contagion or culturally bound syndromes, and all of them, of course, could be stress-induced because a lot of them happen right after famines, right after floods, right after a plague, a regular plague. And so it could be uh, basically PTSD working itself out in any of these fashions. Right. And that seems to better fit the description because unlike an ecstatic religious experience, people are, again, very unhappy to be yeah. having this thing that is harming them. Yeah. Uh, Paracelsus sort of touches on the other one, the faking explanation to either have a day off or in some cases, because the dances would go on for a long time, the church would give you alms charity to keep you, you know, uh, fed, keep prevent, you know, you from going bankrupt when you stop dancing and no one has brought in your harvest. So there could be some fakery going on. The notion that all of them are faked is probably outside the realm of possibility, but in any big dancing crowd, there were probably a couple of people who thought, I'm going to get me some of those sweet alms. Yeah. 
And especially if there's a movement, other people might want to join the movement without actually feeling it in order to feel included and feel part of the thing. Right. And then the last one is uh, good old Sidenem's Korea, which, as you said, Robin, is a, a disease primarily of children. It hits after you've had rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever, of course, is super common in wet areas and what is a river valley if not a wet area you get it as a child and normally that's all that happens but sometimes it recurs in adults who've had side names korea as children and we saw our case in the air fort case where it uh, hit children basel is another case where it hits children and if you have side names korea in a couple of charismatic adults or important adults or interesting adults or just adults that everyone looks at for whatever reason, that can begin the mass psychogenic illness, like the old TikTok syndromes that we've been talking about in other episodes. And so you have a psychogenic syndrome that just blows up and then is only cured when you take the psychological props of it out. And that often happens by, guess what? Ritually dancing around St. Vitus's shrine, ritually dancing to a Another shrine in the river case may be bathing in a sacred brook. There's a, a wonderful history of this. Religious Dances in the Christian Church and Popular Medicine by Lewis Backman. And it goes into more detail than you can possibly uh, desire, or maybe not quite as much as you could possibly desire, but a lot of detail. And uh, this is basically his argument is that there's a lot of things that might feed into it. But at the end of the day, the behavior is a culturally bound syndrome and that they're aiming at curing themselves by religious uh, action, by ritual religious action. And that is sort of his takeaway from the case. Right. Now, now all of these explanations are constrained by taking place in recognizable reality. Yeah. And this is where we come to the part where we ask the question, is this Cthulhu? And the answer is a 14th century Dutch historian, uh, Radolf of Revo, said, in their songs, they uttered the names of devils never before heard of and called them a strange sect. And other writers referred to them as a sect. So this, in fact, in a Cthulhu game, which uh, could be medieval Cthulhu or could be something that is coming back in the in the 30s in Trail of Cthulhu. Or when you have dance marathons in the 20s yeah. in Call of Cthulhu era. Or, you know, at uh, Woodstock in Fall of Delta Green, mm -hmm. uh, this could in fact be a, a spontaneous explosion of uh, cult activity, which may be, you know, literally contagious, right? That the Frau Trophia of it is the one who's been, you know, reading the forbidden texts and then membership in the cult just starts to spread from person to person like a contagion. And your job as the investigators is not to just show up eight years later like Paracelsus, but be on the scene and figure out a solution to it. Right. That it could be the sweat disease like in Star Trek. And that, again, explains why it happens in the summer. Just as a side note, the demon that Radolf of Revo uh, remembers the name of is Frisky. So you might want to change that. Just a thought. <laughs> yes, it, it's much better quoted without the... Without frisky. the name Frisky. Well, maybe that's very sinister in Dutch. We don't know. Well, I mean, it would certainly get, if, if Virgil heard that there was a demon named Frisky somewhere, I feel like he would at least start dancing. Exactly. And again, you could also make this a incursion of Carcosa. Yep. Very easily. That's all about people's realities and identities beginning to, to shift and meld. And uh, the this is normal now setting is supposed to be sort of hyper modern. So this could happen at a at an EDM club, or indeed the uh, the outer dark could be starting to influence people in order to perform the rituals to uh, bring 
demons through the membrane. So there's all sorts of different, you know, weird horror subgenres that you could bolt this phenomenon onto. Right. Or since uh, we know that in Italy it's connected to tarantism and the tarantula, it may not have been a spider that they were seeing. It might have been an insect from Shagai. And it's a mental contagion spread by their horrible azathothic telepathy brain. And people perceive azathoth and it knocks out their motor control. And so they start spasmodically twitching and dancing around as a result of that. Plus, they're hearing hideous flute music. And that's what they're dancing to. Exactly. Because tarantulas, their bite is actually not that serious. but It doesn't it, make you dance, it yeah, turns but out. an insect from Shagai, certainly that would... Uh, cause all sorts of trouble. So we've once more come to the end of uh, another episode and kind of time for you and I to dance right on out of here, uh, hopefully not uh, painfully or spasmodically. And next week we'll dance right in with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borchus. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Help this podcast get to the loquacious informants by joining such talkative backers as... Keelan O'Hay. Christian Durantas. Ben Vincent. Chad Ward. And Chris Farrell. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.